Hello, everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th, when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections, and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, February the 12th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. The status of Northern Ireland and its relationships with the rest of the island of Ireland and with the other constituent parts of the United Kingdom and indeed with the European Union continue to be the subject of contestation and debate in the wake of the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which now governs those relationships in the post-Brexit era, as well as to the increasing volume of voices which are calling for a referendum on Irish unity, and not to mention the fact that this year marks the centenary of the very existence of Northern Ireland itself. One of our most listened to podcasts of the last couple of years was a discussion which I had with Professor Brendan O'Leary about the past, present and future of Northern Ireland. Brendan's Professor of Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania and he's the author of the three-volume Treatise on Northern Ireland and he's also a founding member of the Arons Project which aims to provide authoritative, independent and non-partisan analysis and research on constitutional, institutional and policy options for Ireland North and South within that post-Brexit context. In a piece uh, launching that project in the Irish Times in January, Brendan argued that the time had come to begin making serious preparations for a referendum on Irish unity. So I was very happy to welcome him back to the podcast, and I do hope you find our conversation as interesting as I did. Brendan, you're very welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Hugh. Pleasure to be with you. This official commemoration of the centenary of Northern Ireland is coming up quite shortly now, coming up in May. Uh, First of all, I suppose, could I ask you, for my benefit as well as our listeners, just to lay out what were the actual key political and legislative events which led to the establishment of Northern Ireland? And is May the correct date, if there is one? Uh, Before I answer your impossibly uh, demanding question, let me clarify that I think there are two potential dates uh, for the birth of Northern Ireland and possibly three. One is the Legislative Act, the Government of Ireland Act of 1920, December 1920, which brought Northern Ireland into being on paper, though there had already been substantial preparation for Northern Ireland's future existence on the ground. As you say, May 1921 is uh, a regularly chosen date because that's the date that the Northern Ireland Parliament was elected and shortly thereafter it sat. But in an important sense, it's vital to remember that the treaty negotiated between Sinn Féin and Lloyd George's government overrode the Government of Ireland Act because what the treaty did, and people always forget this, was to create a unified Irish free state but granted Northern Ireland the right to secede from that unified Irish free state subject to two conditions. One is usually recalled, the Boundary Commission. The other is usually forgotten, that Northern Ireland would bear its full fiscal obligations under the uh, what was called the Imperial Contribution. Neither of those conditions was ever accepted by the leadership of the Ulster Unionist Party. 
And uh, to cut a long story short, the treaty requires an Irish constitution to be made. And it isn't until the Irish Free State's constitution is accepted and ratified in the Westminster Parliament that Northern Ireland gets the opportunity to secede from uh, the Irish Free State. So technically, there was a unified Ireland um, after the 1920 Government of Ireland Act on paper, from which Northern Ireland had the right to secede, which it, it did. So it's coming into being has a, a double form of illegitimacy. It was not regarded as legitimate by the uh, overwhelming majority of the people on the island, Irish nationalists. But it was also, uh, in an important sense, not regarded as legitimate by Northern and Irish Unionists who didn't like the partition of Ireland in principle and then especially didn't like the treaty because the treaty unwound significant portions of the Government of Ireland Act. Um, so Northern Ireland, in effect, has two births, uh, is my long-winded answer. Now, why did all this happen? Um, the obvious answer is there had been 40 years of resistance to home rule, primarily concentrated among Irish Unionists and Protestants, and most extensively among Ulster Unionists. That resistance is broken by the reform of the House of Lords in 1911, which allows for the first time the passage of a Home Rule Act through both chambers of the Westminster Parliament. Uh, a, an Ireland Act would have taken place, but for the advent of World War I. And then John Redmond made his famous gamble to postpone the implementation of the Home Rule Act until the outcome of the Great War was known. Uh, he made the, it, it now looks ridiculous assumption that the war would have been over in a very short interval. But as we all know, that, that didn't happen. The war was horrific. Uh, and in 1916, Irish revolutionaries took the opportunity of war uh, to conduct an insurrection against the empire. And that, in effect, killed the Home Rule Act, which is why the British conceive of the Government of Ireland Act after the end of uh, World War I. And there is an important intervening moment, the 1918 elections. They're the first universal uh, male suffrage elections in Ireland with an extensive uh, female franchise as well. And the Sinn Féin party does extraordinarily well, defeating the uh, Irish Independence Party, which stood for Home Rule. And the negotiations between Republicans and the UK government were punctured by uh, the War of Independence. So that's the complex background with which we're all vaguely familiar. The, the point I simply want to make is that Northern Ireland did not unambiguously come into existence in May 1921. Sorry for that terribly long-winded answer. No, it's actually really interesting, and it's not long-winded at all. Um, I'll be perfectly honest, I wasn't fully across the, the, some of those complications myself, particularly the one which I think some of our listeners would be surprised at, that essentially then... Northern Ireland was the entity which seceded from the the larger entity known as Ireland set up after the treaty and the Government of Ireland Act. Yeah, it's a double secession. Ireland secedes from the Union 
But the British insist that Northern Ireland, which they've created in the 1920 Act, will have the right to secede from Ireland, which the Sinn Féin negotiators accept. But they believe that the Boundary Commission is going to transform the size of Northern Ireland and its viability, particularly because they expect the British government to fulfill their uh, commitment that Northern Ireland would pay its full fiscal obligations under, under the continuation of the Union. And they believe, wrongly as it turns out, that the conjunction of these forces will lead to the rapid collapse of Northern Ireland. And of course, that that doesn't happen. And am I right in saying that for the first half a century or more of its of its existence, a little bit more of its existence, that Northern Ireland's constitutional and regulatory structure remains more or less fixed, but that that with the advent of the Troubles and the the shutting down of Stormont and then the various political initiatives, including the Good Friday Agreement, and more recently issues around uh, Northern Ireland's relationship with the European Union, that position has changed quite considerably over the last four decades or so. Right. I, I think we should qualify your generally correct assessment in a couple of ways. One is there there is a 50-year period in which Northern Ireland is governed by the Ulster Unionist Party in a miniature model of the Westminster Parliament situated in Belfast at Stormont. And the important qualification we have to, to make is that originally it's set up as a mirror image of what the British envisaged for home rule for Ireland. Namely, there was proportional representation to apply in election systems in Northern Ireland, both in local government and in elections to the Northern Ireland Parliament. In 1922, the Ulster Unionist Party gets rid of proportional representation in local government because they want to represent the border areas as overwhelmingly unionist to try and block the possibility that the Border Commission would lead to a redrawing of the the boundaries. Uh, Winston Churchill and others pause on whether they're going to allow this significant constitutional change, but eventually decide to let it go ahead. And that's telling because it's the first step towards uh, the establishment of what in effect becomes a one-party regime, albeit in circumstances in which other parties can stand for, for election. And in 1929, proportional representation is removed from elections to the Northern Ireland Parliament. So it's at that juncture, I think, that we see the consolidation of the dominance of one party. Uh, it set up uh, a political system, not uh, entirely deliberately, but it set up a political system that depends upon the permanent exclusion of the minority and the maintenance of solidarity among the majority. And that's that creates the kind of discriminatory regime that is eventually uh, challenged by the civil rights movement in the late 1960s. So that, that's phase one of your, your question. Now, since then, Northern Ireland has been subjected to a range of experiments. Um, the most important was the, the suspension of the Northern Ireland Parliament, uh, and it's, in effect, its abolition in 1972 and its replacement by a Constitution Act in 1973 that, that did two things. One, it transferred the, question of the future status of Northern Ireland from the Northern Ireland Parliament to the people of Northern Ireland in a potential referendum. 
so that's an important transfer. Before 1949, it was ambiguous uh, whether Northern Ireland could be transferred to a United Ireland by Westminster Parliament. From 49 onwards, the UK said it was up to the Northern Ireland Parliament to decide its status vis-a-vis the UK and Ireland. After 73, it's a question of, of referendum. And at the same time, the British shift under the Conservatives towards promoting power-sharing government inside the North. That is a, a chronic failure from the uh, spectacular defeat of the Sunningdale settlement right up until 1998. So you have a very long period of direct rule, punctured by intermittent attempts with various degrees of sincerity to accomplish a power-sharing agreement. The great success is the 1998 Good Friday Agreement, where you get this very complex power-sharing settlement. There is to be power-sharing in Northern Ireland. There is to be power-sharing across the island in the North-South Ministerial Council. And there is to be an East-West Intergovernmental Conference, a a continuing body, the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference, that will replace the conference set up under the Anglo-Irish Agreement of 1985. So you have three patterns of power-sharing established under the Good Friday Agreement, together with the original pledge that the status of Northern Ireland would be decided by uh, a future referendum. So what do political scientists call this complex set of arrangements? Um, They would typically describe Northern Ireland as a consociation. That's a system of power sharing based on parity of esteem among the relevant partners. Proportionality, each each community is represented in proportion to its numbers. Self-government, each community has its own form of schooling, whether that be integrated or religious. And lastly, each community enjoys veto rights. Then they would also say that Northern Ireland has an interesting uh, constitutional status. It looks different from other parts of the UK precisely because its arrangements are set up under an agreement with another sovereign state, namely Ireland. And some would call Northern Ireland a federacy. By that is meant an institutional arrangement in which the self-government of the relevant unit cannot be unilaterally changed by the Westminster government. It requires the consent of the unit itself. Now, that was the original uh, expectation that whatever happened, whether Northern Ireland remained within the UK or it it, uh, transferred its allegiances and loyalties to the Republic in a future referendum, it would be in some important sense in charge of its own destiny. And it could not have its internal constitutional arrangements modified by the Westminster Parliament. That was, that vista was damaged when the Northern Ireland Parliament was unilaterally suspended by the Labour government under Peter Mandelson. But that suspension power was subsequently unwound under the St. Andrews Agreement, and it looked as if Northern Ireland was settling into this uh, distinct federacy status with domestic power-sharing arrangements. That is all looking moderately stable and likely to stay in being for a long time when along comes the referendum of uh, 2016. And no doubt this is a moment for you to to stop me speaking too much. (laughs) Well, it does go on and on, doesn't it? But it does. uh, You don't go on and on, but it goes on and on. It's it. 
it, it strikes me that the other part of that is, of course, that the that the Good Friday Agreement uh, establishes in law uh, an actual formal position of interest for the for this state for Ireland in the affairs of Northern Ireland and particularly in uh, protecting and asserting the rights of the minority uh, community there or what what used to be called the minority community anyway. But then, of course, we've had a, a further addition. Um, from the 1st of January of this year, where the Northern Ireland Protocol puts in place, again, new further measures keeping Northern Ireland, while it's within the United Kingdom, essentially within the single market and the customs union still. Yes, we, we now have um, uh, an extraordinary situation compared to 1998. The Good Friday Agreement, nominally, in all its parts, is entrenched as part of European international, uh, European international treaty with the departing United Kingdom government. I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that as a result of the protocol, uh, the regulation of the single market is left to the joint authority of the European Commission, uh, acting under delegated authority from the European Council and the United Kingdom government. So you have um, now what I'd like to say, just technically and boringly, Northern Ireland is a double federacy. It's protected under the provisions of the Good Friday Agreement, and it's also uh, under an institutional mandate to give it distinct status under European Union law as a result of the protocol. And that creates uh, a very complex, almost gossamer-like institutional structure. Northern Ireland is partly connected to the UK, partly connected to Ireland, partly connected to the European Union, from which the UK has departed. And it it sets up in the decade ahead a competition. There will be those who say, let's get rid of the protocol, let's return to the status quo ante. Northern Ireland within the UK, albeit with the Good Friday Agreement, intact. And then there are those who will say, no, look, this is a mess. It's complicated. The lines of accountability and democratic authority have been mangled. Let's go for a united Ireland within the European Union. Uh, and let's, let's perhaps keep Northern Ireland inside the United Ireland, but let's leave the UK completely. Uh, and then in the middle position, there will be those saying, well, look, these special arrangements are an appropriate response to the distinct history of Northern Ireland. Let's not upset the apple cart. Let's try and make this institutional compromise work. And of course, within the, the Northern Ireland Protocol, which has just been uh, implemented, there uh, there is a requirement that the, uh, that the Assembly in Northern Ireland vote on the status of the protocol and in fact can choose to reject it in, in 2024, I think it is. Although I think it's fair to say it's unlikely given the current political landscape there, that such a thing would happen unless something disastrous or unforeseen happens between now and then. Right. You're you're entirely correct, Hugh. Some people questioned the legitimacy of the protocol on the grounds that the functions concerned should have been subject to a power-sharing vote by the Northern Ireland Assembly. But that's not correct because the relevant powers were powers that were kept by Westminster under the Good Friday Agreement, namely powers related to the customs union and the single market. Uh, The Northern Ireland Assembly never had powers over these subjects. 
Therefore, it's appropriate that uh, some special arrangements of a consensual kind be built into accepting the new order. And what the Irish and British governments agreed was that the Northern Ireland Assembly could vote to veto these new arrangements and then the status quo ante would prevail. Or if they really liked them, they could vote to postpone consideration of them again for another eight years. We'll see what happens. I think you're probably right. Unless there are genuine disasters, the protocol will probably be supported by the SDLP, by the Alliance Party, and by Sinn Féin. And that will give it a, a, an overall comfortable majority in the Assembly. I, I expect the Greens to vote for it as well. The DUP will be opposed. The Ulster Unionist Party will be opposed. Uh, that's the likely scenario. But there are going to be difficulties with the protocol. We, we've seen uh, the emergence of some of them already. So um, we have to be cautious about that assumption. Mm, yes, yeah, definitely. I, I, I want to get on to talk to you in a second about what I know you see as the 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 increasingly pressing question of planning for possible possible constitutional change on the island in the future. But before we get to that, just back to this question of the the centenary, which is for good or ill, is being is being um, commemorated in May. As a as a historian, um, do you find something of this sort useful? Uh, it's already been the subject of a sort of sort of typical Northern Ireland spatting around about the use of images of Seamus Heaney uh, and and that sort of thing. Does it do more harm than good, or more good than harm? Do you think? I think historians, and I speak as a political scientist who does a lot of historical work. Historians exaggerate the importance of centenaries. Uh, they think that um, centenaries create an opportunity for either positive ce- celebration and forgetting of the past, or they create the danger that peop- that old wounds will be reopened and people will be uh, once again pitted against one another in a ferocious fashion. I, I don't take that view of centenaries. Uh, I do think that... Um, if there are real uh, oppositions and antagonisms between groups, then centenaries offer an opportunity for their re-expression. But the holding of a centenary and the opposition to a centenary in itself is not of fundamental importance. So I'm a little skeptical of the significance of these these moments. Um, not everybody shares this view, but that, that happens to be my view. I think it's almost impossible for there to be a, a consensual celebration about the formation of Northern Ireland because it was a unilateral event. It was supported by one community and opposed by the other. Had there been immediate reconciliation and constructive power sharing from 1920, then we'd have a very different reaction to the formation of Northern Ireland. But it wasn't like that, and therefore it's difficult for there to be a conjoint celebration. I suppose then the question might be, if if that's impossible, um, whatever about celebration slash commemoration slash some other less judgmental um, word. How possible is it to have a meaningful and quality consensual debate about possible constitutional change in the future? Well, I I think that the events of 1921-22 and the the preceding 40 years definitely allow people to to reflect on the fact that if one doesn't prepare, if one doesn't uh, allow for carefully calibrated constitutional change, then uh, there is a real danger of a descent into a maelstrom. 
uh, a, a chaotic approach to handling the, the relevant questions. Looking back on the record, it's extraordinarily difficult to uh, assess British policy making towards Ireland between uh, 1886 and 1925 as anything other than a, a general record of irresponsibility on the part of the Conservatives, less so on the, the part of Liberals. So big powers, when they're conscious of other events elsewhere in the world and other activities, can act very irresponsibly towards smaller peoples. So we can certainly take uh, collective warnings and reminders from the past to help us think about the future. Uh, but I don't say that just because it's a 100 years since Northern Ireland was formed, now is the, t the appropriate time to think about transforming things. I just so happen to think that there is a serious prospect of a referendum on Irish unification on the horizon within a decade. And therefore, it's appropriate, especially for Ireland, meaning sovereign Ireland, to prepare for that possibility, to contemplate it, to decide what it wants to do. So the last time we talked, you pointed uh, approvingly, I think, to Korea, which has had a a dedicated government department looking at the question of the potential reunification of North and South Korea into the future. And, and from what I understand, vast resources given to that. And you compared that unfavorably with, with what we've been doing here. There are moves afoot now. Are there, are there not both at the level of government and in civic society to start to redress that? I think so. What I had in mind in our previous conversation was that I thought the Koreans had been wise to create a Ministry of National Reunification, addressing a whole range of topics. And I may have mentioned that a former PhD student of mine is the head of the women's unit in that ministry. Uh, I, I still think that kind of idea might be sensible in Ireland. Uh, I, I think the reasons for it are that uh, any unification, if it happens, and I admit it's an if, it's not an inevitability, would be so transformative that you have to be prepared for it. That's that's my core argument. Now, it is true that Ireland has recently set up a shared island unit in the Department of the, the Taoiseach. And that's significant because it's not uh, under the brief of the Department of Foreign Affairs. It's inside the Prime Minister's office. It's a domestic question as much as it is a, a question of international relations. That's important. But it's very clear that the Taoiseach and many of people close to him are giving the impression that the shared island unit is an alternative to thinking about uh a unified Ireland, rather than something complementary to it. It is, of course, absolutely obvious that Ireland should do as much as possible to make the Good Friday Agreement work, to have very good cross-neighbourly, uh, cross-border relationships with Northern Ireland, as long as uh, these relationships persist. And it's vital that sensible cooperation takes the form of infrastructural developments across the whole island, that Ireland does the imaginative things it's do done with regard to Erasmus programs, generously agreeing to uh, ensure the participation of Northern students in Erasmus programs if they want. All of that is uh, excellent and unproblematic. 
But I think the Taoiseach and those close to him have taken a, a policy decision that they don't want to talk about preparing for a united Ireland. They think it's better to talk about and prepare for and to organize uh, a shared island. And they think of these as antagonistic options. I personally, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, would prefer people to think of these as complementary objectives. Prepare for a poss- the possibility that there won't be unification. What kind of constructive relationships do we want on this island? Alternatively, prepare for, uh, and at the same time, prepare for the possibility that there will be unification and ask hard questions that have never seriously been addressed in the Republic. For example, if there is a United Ireland, should there be a Northern Ireland inside a United Ireland or not? And if so, of what kind? Those kinds of profound questions have not really been engaged in uh, by Irish public opinion. And that's the kind of thinking I, I think is necessary. In particular, because the the way the Good Friday Agreement set up the question of future unification is that the triggering of the referendum, uh, I regret the metaphor of triggering, but the triggering of the referendum is in the hands of the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. So it's possible that Ireland may find itself involved in a big referendum question without adequate preparation. And it could be blindsided by an unkind and unfriendly British government, uh, which sounds a bit like 2016, right? Uh, that is a contingent possibility. Uh, and the, the, the reason that's so vital is that the worst kind of outcome, whatever, whether it was a vote in favor of uh, Irish unification or a vote against it, uh, north and south, if there was no prior preparation, we'd have, uh, a mess that looks, that makes the Brexit mess look like a, a relatively organized Edwardian Tea Party. Hmm. Is, is there not a sort of a, a paradox or a kind of catch-22 here from the point of view of setting up a series of forums, I suppose, and processes to, to tease out those sort of questions you've, you've, you've just referred to there? Um, you know, the most thorny questions to be addressed are what is the position of the minority of people who wish to remain part of the United Kingdom? But it's their political representatives who are least likely to engage with the process in the first place. Now, without giving them a veto on discussions taking place, which would clearly be wrong and be impractical. How does one address that problem? It, it's a very good question, Hugh. Uh, unionists, uh, many, many unionists have already taken, in effect, a strategic decision not to engage either with those in the north or those across the island as a whole who are talking about the possibilities of future unification. They believe with strategic rationality that to participate is to advance precisely what they oppose. Uh, and that does pose a problem for the Irish government. And one response is to say, let's not do anything until they're prepared to think about it. But we have to bear in mind that the possibility that Irish unification could be voted for in the north without significant evidence of unionist engagement or participation. Uh, beforehand, making clear what their preferences are if, from their point of view, the worst happens and there's a vote for unification. So what do we do? Uh, I think there are several options. One is we do as much as we can to probe and analyse 
and check and find out what is public opinion in the various communities in the north. When that opinion is explored without the direct participation of their elected leaders. What do people say in small forums when they're presented with various options? If you, I know you don't want a united Ireland, but if it's going to happen, here are two or three different ways in which it might be structured. Which would you prefer? Uh, I know you want to retain your British identity. Ireland is committed to preserving your British British citizenship rights. But won't you want to have Irish citizenship as well as British citizenship, which are already entitled to under the Good Friday Agreement? Or do you want to have just British citizenship uh, in a united Ireland? What are the implications of following that practice? Currently, we have two police forces on the island, the Garda Shikona and the Police Service of Northern Ireland. Would you want the existing police arrangements to persist even if there wasn't a Northern Ireland uh, Assembly. Uh, do you want the Northern Ireland Assembly to persist or do you want it to be changed in some significant way? These are all the kinds of questions you can probe with uh, the public. You can invite people to small group meetings, seminars. You can have large scale, larger scale citizens' assemblies. People might choose to boycott them, but if, if it's clear that there's a sincere attempt to establish preferences rather than to dictate outcomes, I think some people will engage. Uh, the, the point is that the Irish government needs to be carefully informed about the internal divisions of opinion among unionists, as well as what they're obviously uh, most opposed to. Uh, one of the things that Ireland discovered in 1969 was how badly informed it was about opinion in both communities in the North, both among nationalists and among unionists. It can't find itself in a similar position again. So uh, that's one way. Tap public opinion, uh, explore it rather than trying to, to strongly shape it if there isn't uh, engagement. Then the second question is, how do you in, engage the political elite among unionists? Some of them are already opening uh, the door in this respect. Peter Robinson, the former uh, first minister of Northern Ireland, and Gavin Robinson, uh, a Democratic Unionist Party MP from Belfast, are thinking about how do they defend the union in uh, the face of a prospective referendum. They are... Uh, refusing the what I call the ostrich option. They want to openly defend the union and think about the the proper defense of the union. And I think that's to be entirely welcomed. And I think if that starts to be a genuine feature of unionist uh, internal debate and dialogue, then we'll shift subject matter from the high constitutional politics of whether you have a unitary Ireland, whether you have a, a devolved Northern Ireland inside Ireland, whether you have a federal Ireland, you will shift politics to the discussion of what would uh, an all-island uh, all broadcasting network be like? What would an all-island health service be like? What would an all-island educational uh, set of arrangements be like? How would the economy of... Uh, a unified sovereign Irish state perform compared to the present. Uh, 
Many unionists would welcome uh, dialogue and debate on those subjects because they're quite confident that the existing arrangements in the North look good when assessed in relationship to these questions. But they might also be in for a, a rude surprise that there are there is evidence contrary to their standard assumptions on these questions. So I look forward to when debate takes place on the important nitty-gritty questions. Are there going to be two health services on the island? Will they merge into one kind of system? And what will that look like? Will it be more like the NHS? Uh, in which case there'll be a lot of opposition from doctors in, in Dublin and elsewhere. Or will it be uh, some modified version of the system Ireland has already? So these are different ways in which I think dialogue can begin about the possibilities of uh, Irish unification. The, the, the most important thing, uh, and this is an abstract wish and therefore typical to be found among uh, academics, Ireland should not, in my view, think of itself as assimilating Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland should not think of itself as being assimilated by Ireland. Rather, what needs to take place is a debate about what are, what are the best systems in place? How can we mix and match and take the best options available? And what can we do that's novel? What, what can we take as a positive opportunity to do something differently that neither of us have done before? Um, and that seems to me to be one of the most interesting, challenging and perhaps exciting parts of it. Just you know, your, your reference to, to doctors in Dublin there. This is not just about unionists thinking about what this new Ireland would look like. You, you, you know, one could take a minimalist approach to this, which really said that the current dispensation and the sort of sets of safeguards which exist in the existing entity of Northern Ireland would just be transferred over into uh, United Ireland with unionists being the ones who are protected presumably against the, against the larger body in this case. But uh, it, that's always struck me as not necessarily being a terribly good idea for lots of reasons, apart from anything else. Once the unity question is finished, the, the purpose of Sinn Féin and the SDLP within Northern Ireland seems moot, and it seems likely to me that they you know, become absorbed into, into larger political parties. So that then raises the question of do traditional unionist parties in that, you know, in that form recur. It's been one of, surely it's been one of the unhealthy aspects of Northern Ireland that the constitutional question has been at the core of party political identity for a hundred years. I, for one, would welcome seeing the back of that. And also perhaps a little bit more imagination about a federal Ireland that runs beyond just retaining the six counties as an entity, but a a more broadly federal Ireland and a uh, taking away of some power from Dublin, which a lot of people have identified as being a problem in the way this country here is run right now. Ireland is very centralised. I agree that the the prospect of unification opens exactly all of these kinds of possibilities. And if you put it in a very simple way, Hugh, the South has an obligation to consider whether it wants to propose a model of a unified Ireland. And that could be... Um, extending the constitution of Ireland North, getting rid of the Northern Ireland Assembly, uh, having county government or variants thereof and city government on the southern model in the north. Or it can think of, as we've uh, discussed before briefly, uh, transferring the Good Friday Agreement model in full, having a, a Northern Assembly inside a united Ireland, to which there are some big problems attached that 
we, perhaps we can come back to. Ireland can, in other words, set out a model of how the constitutional arrangements would work and what it envisaged on public services and, and policies. Option one. Option two is to say, well, actually, we'd rather postpone most of these choices until we know whether you want to be part of the United Ireland or not. And if you vote yes, then there will be uh, a constitutional convention in which there will be extensive de deliberation over what we finally choose to replace the existing orders, North and South. It could merely modify the existing constitution of Ireland. It could be a constitutional replacement. Now, that uh, idea of a constitutional convention postpones the choice of model, but clearly there have to be default arrangements that operate in the transitional period and that would have to operate if there was no agreement at the constitutional convention. So even if you go down that route, the South must lay out clearly what the default arrangements are going to be. And it's that kind of preparatory thinking that has to start. Um, if, if you're seriously thinking about these questions, the initiative of holding a referendum technically lies with a British government. The question posed in a referendum will be a United Ireland or the maintenance of the United Kingdom. But it will be Ireland which has to put forward its vision of a United Ireland. Uh, and without that, the voters are not getting a fair choice. In my view, that, that choice is actually deeply fundamental because some people would find the idea of postponing everything to a constitutional convention deeply, deeply scary and destabilizing. They'd want to hang on to the existing achievements and successes of an independent Ireland, which have been very considerable. And they'd be worried about jeopardizing all those accomplishments, in which case they should argue for a model of extending the existing Irish arrangements north. Uh, all I say is that this debate should take place and there should be decisions uh, of a reasonable and flexible kind made on these subjects. Accepting all that and offering the caveat that my powers of political prediction are really not very good at all, still, when I look at the state of the opinion polls on this issue as they currently stand in Northern Ireland. And I suppose in a way, when I uh, look into my soul a little bit about what I think and know about Northern Ireland and the way things are there, um, I don't believe there is currently a majority or, or will be a majority in the next five to 10 years to take Northern Ireland out of the United Kingdom and into a, into a new dispensation. Um, and I suppose that colours my, my view of this process. I completely accept everything you're saying about how worthwhile what you're, what you're describing there is and why it should be done. But I suspect that those who are looking for a referendum on the United Ireland in the next 10 years are, are accepting of the notion that it might be a first stage, that it, exactly as Scottish nationalism is now moving back very quickly to a second referendum within far less than a decade, that Irish nationalism uh, expects perhaps to be doing the same? It, it's possible. I, I would like to emphasise that I share your factual appraisal of the present. I don't think there is a current majority for uh, 
a united Ireland in Northern Ireland. And therefore, I don't think that there's an imminent prospect of a referendum. And that's why I, I argue this is the appropriate time to prepare. Where we may differ is that I see and foresee uh, coming events which will transform the picture in ways that I agree are open-ended. They don't automatically lead to unification, but they do increase its probability. Uh, number one, demographic change in the North continues slowly, incrementally, and we will see uh, in 2021, uh, provided the census can take place in, in current conditions, that there is no longer a cultural Protestant majority in Northern Ireland. How quickly that is matched by there not being a unionist majority in terms of preferences is an open question. But it does mean that the stability of the union will increasingly depend upon the active consent and support of cultural Catholics in the North. Whether they be Alliance voters or SDLP voters or possibly moderate Sinn Féin voters is immaterial. That's a transformative moment. It means that the North's membership of the Union depends upon cultural Catholics. And we all know the cultural Catholics' uh, view of the Union has minimally been more volatile than that of Ulster Protestants and at times being deeply antithetical. So that's that's a seismic change that is underway and uh, it's at its its final trajectory i agree is unknown but it is surely a reasonable uh, judgment that it could go strongly in favor of of irish reunification that's change number 1 change number 2 is partly as a welcome byproduct of uh, increased um education and affluence in some sections of the population, partly in reaction to a century of uh, bipolar national antagonisms in the North, there's a significant block of other voters. We don't yet know if they're going to stabilize at 20% or grow. Uh, we don't know whether they'll regress uh, in numbers, but it's possible that they might grow. And what we do know about that block is that it's uh, it's less uh, less enthusiastic about identifying as cultural Catholic or cultural Protestant, but it is overwhelmingly pro-European. And it was deeply unhappy to see Northern Ireland taken out of the European Union against its will. So in the next decade, we're going to have a, a very visible competition as to who performs best at the UK or rather Great Britain outside the European Union, or Ireland inside the European Union. And that will visibly decide people's preferences because the other block will basically ask itself, where is life going to be better for me and my family and my children in future? And they will be less uh, aligned with partisan positions from uh, the history of their respective families' origins. So that's going to matter as well. And um, thirdly, there is the, the matter of the protocol. Is it going to work? Is it going to be stable? Is it going to set up all sorts of awkward choices that make people think, aha, uh -huh, let's simplify, let's unify inside the European Union? 
Or instead, will it lead to a reversal? Let's simplify. Let's go back to Northern Ireland being inside the UK, which is flourishing under Brexit. And as you can imagine, I think that's a lower probability likelihood. So I think your statement of the status quo is right. But remember, we've not seen the workings out, the working out of the phenomena that I'm talking about. Those are, those are going to be operative in the decade ahead. Yeah, so it'll all come down to which is more important, your Erasmus scholarships for your kids or your pork pies in Sainsbury's arriving on the shelves in time. And <laughs> nice many, purchase. many other. We'll leave it there. As always, that's absolutely uh, fascinating, Brendan. Thank you for giving us your, your time and your, your thoughts on that. Hope to talk to you again very soon. Thank you, Hugh. You're very generous. And that's it for today. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Ryan. If you'd like to get in touch with us, drop us a line at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com and we're always really delighted to hear from you. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. 